Welcome, one and all, to Boss Science, a podcast where I interview wicked smart scientists to learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, Grace Ingalls, and in today's episode, I'm going to be talking all about the world of functional fibers. These fibers put cotton to shame. They can be woven into fabrics to make clothes that do all sorts of amazing things, like emit and detect light, measure your pulse, harness and store solar energy, transmit laser light beams, and, hopefully one day soon, we'll be able to replace your smartphone. So, are you ready to learn about some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show. Take a second and look down. Tell me, what are you wearing right now? This isn't me trying to make a pass at you, alright? If it was, I'd use a better pickup line. I'm serious, what are you wearing? Is it a t-shirt and jeans? A dress? A lab coat? A onesie? Nothing? I mean, if that's how you like to listen to podcasts, by all means, do you. But chances are, you're wearing some form of clothes. And these clothes, just like all fabrics and textiles, are made up of fibers. These can be natural fibers, like cotton, wool, or silk, or they can be synthetic, like rayon, polyester, or nylon. But regardless of how you spin it, (laughs) get it? Like spinning to make fibers? Sorry, I'll stop. It's clear that we are surrounded by fibers. Humans have been using fibers for thousands of years, In fact, the oldest evidence of human manipulation of fibers was found in a cave in the country of Georgia, where archaeologists found pieces of flax fibers that had been twisted, cut, and even dyed, which they dated to originate from over 36,000 years ago. In modern day, fabrics and textiles have become a huge part of our culture. In the United States alone, the annual revenue of the clothing market is almost $350 billion dollars and the average household in the U.S. spends about $1,800 on clothing annually. So apparently I need to cut down on my clothing spending, because that is not my average. It's higher. Clothing is something that almost every person in the world uses almost every day, which makes fibers a material that we interact with every day without even thinking about it. And aside from the invention of some new synthetic fibers, Not much has been done to change how we use fibers in the past 10,000 years. But what if these fibers could do more? What if you could change the way that clothes are used? Imagine having a hat that could record your class lectures so you don't have to take notes, or a t-shirt that charges your phone as you run outside on a sunny day, or even a jacket that could help you lift weights. Well, these ideas aren't from some sci-fi novel or a Black Mirror episode. These clothes are soon to be reality all with the help of functional fibers. What are functional fibers, you ask? These are unique fibers that have enhanced functionality, such as fibers that can emit or detect light, store energy, and even move on their own. The researchers at the lab Fibers at MIT are able to use these fibers in ways I've never even dreamed of, from weaving the fibers into fabrics, loading them into a 3D printer, or even threading them through the human body. I meet with the head of the lab, Professor Yol Fink, as well as some of his lab members to learn all about the world of functional fibers, how they're made, what they can do, what they're used for, and where they're going in the future. So buckle in guys, cause it's about to get wild. It's a beautiful sunny day in Cambridge, a rarity for February, I assure you when I head to the MIT's Department of Material Science and Engineering to sit down and talk with Professor Yol Fink. For over 20 years, Professor Fink has devoted his academic career to the topic of fibers, and during this time, he and his lab have made huge leaps forward in progressing the science of multimaterial and multifunctional fibers. Where did all this research start? Why did he choose to research it? What can we expect in the future of functional fibers? Professor Fink answers all these questions and more. My first question was, what drew you to the field of functional fibers? How did you actually get involved in this? When I joined the faculty, 
one of the projects that I focused on had to do with sending optical signals through a new type of fiber that had a hollow core and had a mirror inside. We call that the OmniGuide structure. And so I, my research started on that topic, trying to figure out ways to fabricate that type of structure and eventually that structure and that idea turned into a medical device company. Wait, like a real device company? Yes, indeed. These fibers are being used in the real world already, and we didn't even know about it. I did a little research to learn more about the first functional fiber, and I need you guys to jump down this rabbit hole with me for a minute, because this fiber is going to blow your mind. So inside the OmniGuide functional fiber, you'll find a hollow tube and a whole mess of polymer-based mirrors. And these mirrors are able to reflect laser light energy throughout the entire length of the fiber. Now, this is wild, especially when you consider how difficult it is for conventional optical fibers to transmit light over long distances without some form of energy loss. What this fiber did was offer a way to transfer almost 100% of light energy through the entire length of this tiny flexible fiber. This means you can literally shoot laser beams out the end of this fiber. Luckily for us, Professor Fink decided to use his powers for good rather than evil. And this structure was developed to be used as a novel surgical technique. So, say you have some form of tumor, and it's growing in an area where traditional surgical techniques to remove the tumor would be too invasive. In this case, you could turn to the OmniGuide for help. So, the surgeon would take this flexible fiber, thread it through your body to get to the site of the tumor, and then use laser light to destroy or cut out the tumor entirely. That is amazing. And it turns out that in 1999, about a year after Professor Fink and his team at MIT published their work on the OmniGuide functional fiber, their work was cited in the Breakthrough of the Year article published by Science Magazine. Their fibers came in second, with the winner of that year being the Human Genome Project. So they're kind of a big deal. Then, in 2000, the OmniGuide Surgical Incorporated was founded, and since then, the company has grown to provide products for doctors all across the world. It has amassed almost $130 million in funding, and its products have been used in over 23,000 procedures. If you guys have any interest in watching the OmniGuide work, and you have a strong stomach, you can watch the videos on the company's website and be thankful that the fiber exists. Now, back to Professor Fink. So that really got me started in the area of thinking about fibers. And what was it specifically that made you decide to focus on functional fibers? Is there anything in particular that decided to go down this route? Well, fibers are quite unusual. First of all, they're among the most ubiquitous forms of materials we have around us, both in the natural world, a lot of our natural structures, trees, and even the body are made of fibrous materials and fibrous structures. Certainly, Synthetic structures like fabrics, composites, non-wovens like curtains and drapes, all are made of fibers. And so fibers really surround us. And so I felt that this is an area that currently may not be getting enough research attention. At least on the face of it, it appear that in many areas, the fundamental capabilities of, of these fabrics haven't changed much over time. And so the question we had was, could reimagining a fiber, you know, breathe a new functional life into fabrics and really enable all these surfaces that are so close to us? So I was wondering if there was any specific question or challenge that you were trying to address or answer when you started the lab. Initially, what we were trying to do is create this very low loss fiber that was hollow and that had these multiple layers of very different materials that were all on a micron or submicron scale. The challenge there was trying to manufacture or fabricate or process a fiber that had dozens of layers, each one of them a micron in its thickness, but a uniform over you know a length scale of kilometers. It's sort of like controlling an object the thickness of your finger between the earth and the moon. And so that was a huge challenge. Uh, so that was kind of where we started. The key question was, could you make a fiber out of two very different materials and, and achieve these 
tremendous scales, uh, length on the one hand, but also layer thickness on the other. Uh, and that disparity was was a you know was mind-boggling. In the process, we started making fibers that had combinations of semiconductors and insulators, and it became at some point obvious that having a semiconductor and an insulator opens the prospect or the opportunity to add a metal to it, add a conductor. Once you have those three materials, where you could start realizing devices and fibers. And that led us to this question of whether fibers could have much higher level, much more sophisticated level of functionality, similar to electronic systems and devices like smartphones. What are some of the goals that you'd like to achieve for your research now? Do you have any specific long-term goals that you're hoping your lab will be able to succeed? Yeah, so, you know, I think right now there are four dimensions that we're exploring. I'd say dimension number one is the Moore's Law for fibers. So, the Moore's Law, which is named after the engineer and co-founder of Intel, Mr. Gordon E. Moore, is based on a prediction made by Mr. Moore back in 1965, where he postulated that the number of transistors, those little electrical things that make your phones and computers function, which can be packed into a given unit of space will double every two years. If more transistors are able to be packed into the same area, you get the advantage of having the same processing power available in a smaller size. Well, turns out this prediction came true and went even further than Mr. Moore originally expected. And today, the doubling of transistors on silicon chips occurs closer to every 18 months instead of every two years. That's why you're always running off to buy the new version of the iPhone, even though you just got yours last year. The same concept can also be applied to fibers, and the basic capability of these functional fibers can increase in a Moore's Law-like way. This means every year the technology will become more advanced, it will cost less to fabricate, and it will be able to do more. So fibers are going to become more and more functional. Fibers are going to be able to store information. Fibers are going to be able to communicate. Fibers are going to be able to sense. Fibers are going to be able to pick up sound. Fibers are going to be able to release materials, and so on and so forth. So that is the first element of our plan. Really, it's figuring out how far can a fiber go from a standpoint of functionality and utility. That's dimension number one, the Moore's Law for fibers. Dimension number two is once your fibers become highly capable, well, that opens the opportunity for a collection of fibers, something that we call a fabric, to take on a whole new meaning. The third element of the strategy is given that fabrics occupy the most interesting, fascinating real estate in the world, what value are we extracting from the location of these fabrics being on the surface of our bodies? Now, if you think about it, the fabrics that we wear extract or contain a huge amount of information about how our bodies uh, operate. In a way, the fabric knows more about us than anything. But that fabric, we don't have a simple way to communicate with that fabric. We certainly don't have a simple way to store that information in a digital form. That, I feel, is going to be the next uh, step. Once we have the fiber of Moore's Law in place, the fabric computers, well then, what types of fabric AI could we harness to really learn about how our body operates and, and what our performance is, what our calorie expenditure is, and, you know, when we're falling into disrepair. Finally, you know, we've all observed the transformation enabled by software of, you know, the whole smartphone revolution. The reason we are so attached to our smartphones is not because they necessarily are aesthetic or comfortable to carry around, but because they really provide us with value-added services. The future is going to be very much around fabrics providing services. I was wondering what you think, because these fabrics have so many different uses and possible outcomes, what do you think would be the biggest impact that your research would have in the real world? Yeah. Would it be for healthcare? Would it be for personal yeah. uh, use? Well, I, listen, I strongly believe that we're living in the final years of fabrics as we know them. I strongly feel that when we look back at this period, we're going to see the transformation of fabrics as we know them that will really be centered around this period of time. 
what gets me excited is this ability to transform this undervalued commodity surface that is pretty much the closest thing that we have on us or the closest thing physically to us, to our hearts. And that, that goal is really what I think is going to happen in the next few years. Do you guys have any other pipelines in place to try to take some of the fibers and the research that you've gotten here and turn them into to products? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think right now I really would like to focus on this big idea, which is the fabric computer. You know, I think we're living through a time now that's similar to the advent of computation uh, or personal computation, where we're, we, at some point, all of us started having a personal computer. And I think we're on our way to all of us having a fabric computer. And that, that really is, I would say, the big, the next big goal. I'm curious, though, this fabric computer, would this be something where you could toss your smartphone and throw on a sweater and head out yeah. the door and you'd be all yeah. set, ready to go? Absolutely. That would be really fantastic. Absolutely. I think we're, we're definitely on our way there. And I think for most of us, when we can carry less, we prefer that. And when we could learn more about our bodies and about our performance and about our experiences and monitor our health, better we prefer that and so it really is i think well aligned with human needs i'm certainly very excited about uh, making that future so guys if any of you are planning on studying at mit and you don't know what kind of research you want to do yet go work with professor fink because i want this fabric computer to be on the market asap but fabric computers aren't the only cool thing functional fibers can be used for. To learn more about the different types of functional fibers and their applications, I sit down with a few of the researchers working in Professor Fink's lab, who are turning our fantasies of fabric computers and so much more into a reality. I'm Gabriel Locke. My name is Charles I'm Juliet Anna. These three wicked smart scientists are all working hands-on with these fibers in the lab and can explain how they work better than anyone else. So the first question I had for these guys was to figure out how the hell these functional fibers are actually made. Well, turns out, even though they have dozens of different types of functional fibers that they can create, the general process for creating them is essentially the same. Gabriel Loke, a fifth-year PhD student in the lab whose research focuses on multi-material fibers for 3D printing, gives us a rundown on how functional fibers are made. We start off with a large chunk of polymer. We call this polymer a, a preform. And within, within this preform, we actually assemble the different materials together. So it can comprise of metals, semiconductors, and different forms of insulators. Assemble all of them into this huge chunk of polymer, and there you have it, you have a preform. What you do next is to bring this um, preform into what we call a draw tower. Now, I was fortunate enough to be able to get a tour of Professor Fink's lab before the whole city shut down, and I got to see this draw tower in person. It's about 10 feet high, bright blue, and honestly terrifying. It consists of a clasp at the very top to hold this preform in place, and then a huge furnace to heat the preform up, and then mechanisms to pull the preform into fibers. I couldn't believe the size of this thing. You literally have to climb up a ladder to use it. If you look at the picture I took of our three scientists standing next to it, you really get a feel for how huge this thing is and how much I don't want to use it. So what we do now is to place this preform into the furnace and we turn up the heat and that's gonna heat up the preform. We are gonna melt the materials in the preform and about after an hour or so, um, the polymer is gonna soften and when soften, it's gonna form a necking region and simply by pulling onto this necking region, we are gonna have a, a, a tapered region, which essentially is the fiber itself and you can just continue pulling on it. It's like pulling on a it's like pulling candy, so it's kind of the same process. And, um, but instead of candy, it's instead uh, of candy, fibers that light up and detect right. light. Very cool. Yeah. Is it does it take a lot of time to make these fibers? So it depends on which application, but it's actually uh, relatively shorter than compared to a lithography process. 
It's even faster given that you will make a preform which could take you, let's say, between half a day and a day and a half to have a full preform, but out of it you get a hundred meters of fiber. Wow. So so it pays off. Quick. Okay, very cool. So as long as you put in that work beforehand, you'll have plenty of material to work with. You could give me a million years and every book in the MIT library, and I still don't think I would have been able to come up with that technique. Luckily, these guys already figured it out for us. So when these guys are creating their functional fiber preforms, they were able to embed all sorts of different materials into the fiber, including actual devices. One example being diodes. Semiconductor diodes are a basic building block when it comes to electrical devices and circuits, and they're found literally everywhere in our lives. They're inside your laptops, phones, chargers, TVs, game consoles, toys, cameras, cars, the list goes on and on. There are many different types of diodes available, which is what makes diodes so useful for all of our different devices. Juliette Alain, a third-year PhD student working on creating stretchable, functional fibers, explains to me how diode fibers can be made to emit and detect light, as well as showing me all the crazy ways that their group can use these fibers in their research and in the real world. So I was hoping that you can explain a little bit about what these semiconductors are and these semiconductor diodes and how, how they get embedded into these fibers. So the devices we use are what is used in any electronics material, electronic device nowadays. In the case of this paper, these were small LED diodes and small photodetectors. So the LEDs are the same thing as what you could have in a small light emitting device. Okay, um, so like, like they'll have them on bike wheels yes, and stuff like that. Exactly. Obviously we chose the smallest we could find yeah. because you want to emit them in fibers that are, let's say, half a millimeter thick. Ooh, wow. Can you explain how each of these diodes would actually work once they're in the fiber? Well, they work the same as how they work in any other applications. So diodes are basically a PN junction. When you run current with the energy that is brought, you have an electron jumping across the band gap and these emits in this light. And the actual, the detectors, the photo, the light detectors, how do those ones work? It's kind of the reverse way. Okay. So in the diode, it's the electron coming down the band gap that is gonna emit light. In a photo detector, the light comes on the material and an, electro, an electron is gonna jump up the band gap and this is gonna absorb the light and create a current. And this current is basically telling you what is the light intensity. You've gone through, you've designed your light emitting or light detecting diodes and embedded them into the fibers. Now that you've actually created the fibers, you can actually weave these fibers into clothing so that you can wear them. I was curious for these actual materials, is this something where you would have to be very careful with whatever clothing has those fibers in it? Or can they be sweating? Can they be washed? Can they be really used? Or is this more to, you know, it's like when you have really nice clothes and you don't want to wear them because you're going to ruin them. So in, in the case of these fibers, everything is embedded into the polymer cladding. So the diodes are safe and the electrodes are safe. And we've actually shown that we could wash these fibers and these fabrics with the diode fibers in them several times and they're fine. They work in water too. Oh, um, very cool. I would say that the only point you have to be careful about is the connection between the, the electrodes of the fiber and the battery or the reading system. But you can encapsulate all of this and then you make it waterproof, sweatproof, anything proof. That's really cool. So it's nice to know that you can actually use these things. Your lab published a paper about these LED and photodetecting fibers, and the paper demonstrated a few of the possible applications for these diode-embedded fibers, one of which was a type of pulse measurement system. How would that work? So basically, in this pulse measurement system, I would say, we got to have one LED fiber and one photodetecting fiber. Wait, that's it? You only need two fibers for this whole system? That didn't sound right, so I looked it up. He's totally right. In this experiment, the researchers lined up a single green LED fiber and a single photodetecting fiber just a few millimeters apart from each other in a cloth fabric. By placing your fingertip over both of these fibers, the green light emitted from the LED will go through your skin 
and when it hits the red blood cells inside your artery, the light will be reflected back and be picked up by the photodetector. As your heart beats, the blood vessels in your fingertip, and probably elsewhere in your body too, will expand, allowing more red blood cells to flow through. This increase in red blood cells means more green light is being reflected back to the photodetector, which in turn results in an increase in the amount of current coming from the photodiode. You take this photocurrent, and with just a few extremely complicated mathematical equations, boom, you got your heart rate. Wild, right? Turns out, this isn't new technology, though. It's based on a concept called photoplasmography. I don't think I said that right. Also called PPG, and it's used in a lot of current pulse measuring systems. You ever notice when you take your Fitbit off and flip it over, you see a little flashing green light? That's it! And now you know what it's called. Probably not how it's pronounced, but still. And the fact that this can all be done with just two little fibers blows my mind. Sorry I doubted you, Gabriel. From there, then you can trace back to your heartbeat. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So this would theoretically, you could just have something like a band-aid almost and just place right over one of your veins and that would be how you could have consistent measuring of your pulse? Yeah. Do you guys envision this being something like you wear, it would just be in your clothing or would it be specifically for when you're at the hospital? How do you think that this would pulse measuring fiber stuff would be used? I think these will probably start in a more medical kind of area, but we can't foresee that in the future, you know, people are interested in monitoring their own health, having their data on their phone and so on. So I think that even if it starts kind of in the hospital, it will probably quickly spread and be used by just everyone. I could definitely get used to having some type of pulse measurement clothing that I can wear whenever I go for a run. Another application of these fibers that was detailed in the paper was the concept of using these LED fibers as a probe for optogenetically modified neurons. I've never even heard of this concept before. What can you tell me about it? Optogenetically modified neurons, you basically bring a virus that infects the neurons and it will add a channel on the membrane of the neuron and this channel is light sensitive. And so when you shine light on the neuron, this ion channel will open and then you create an action potential. So you make the neuron fire that way. And the idea is that with these very, very thin fibers that have an LED that will be placed on the tip of them, for example, you can go dig in the brain or in the spinal cord, just hit the spot that you want to stimulate, and then the fiber is connected externally, and you just send current, light up the LED, and then you can stimulate the neurons that way. So what type of situations would you need to have these probes that will stimulate neurons? How would you use this in like a medical or research setting? So now it's mostly used in research for studying new pathways, because we obviously don't know most of the pathways in our neural system. So if you're able to stimulate a very specific area and then record somewhere else, you can kind of infer the different chains of neuron firing in your neural system. Nice! Can you guys even believe that? It's bonkers. And embedding diodes is just one example of how we can create functional fibers. The possibilities don't stop there. Aside from using LED and photodetectors, the group has also been able to incorporate MEMS into their functional fibers. Now, let me be clear. I said MEMS, not memes. So, you won't find any Grumpy Cat or Peppy the Frog pictures here. Sorry to disappoint. But MEMS, which is short for Microelectrical Mechanical Systems, are almost as cool as Grumpy Cat. Almost. Now, don't freak out if you haven't heard of MEMS before. I'm going to give you a little introduction into MEMS technology. But just a little one, though. We don't want to have too much learning on this podcast, am I right? So the term MEMS stands for Microelectrical Mechanical Systems. And honestly, everything you really need to know is listed right there in the acronym. Essentially, MEMS are an integrated system of mechanical and electrical devices and structures that are fabricated on the micro scale. When I say micro scale, I'm referring to a range of a few micrometers to a few millimeters in size. So our smaller MEMS can be smaller than the width of a single strand of hair, 
while our bigger mems can be just about as large as the tip of a pencil. So when I say micro, I really do mean micro. What makes MEMS such an interesting and important technology is the ability of these microsystems to both sense and interact with our environment. All MEMS devices consist of some form of microsensors and microactuators, and these components are what allow the MEMS device to convert one form of energy to another. A microsensor converts a measured mechanical stimulus into an electrical signal, while a microactuator does the reverse. I know, I know, it's a lot of new vocab words. I promise, there won't be a test. To try and help you understand, let me give you an example. One that you probably never even realized used MEMS technology, and that's your car airbag system. All modern cars make use of a MEMS device to control the deployment of the car's airbags. The way it works is that this MEMS device has a microsensor that can detect a sudden rapid deceleration in the car. So, the microsensor will take this mechanical signal, convert it into an electrical signal, send that signal through a bunch of circuits that I don't understand, and, if the signal is strong enough to indicate a collision, it then gets sent to the microactuator, which turns the electrical signal into a mechanical effect, aka the deploying of the airbags. Simple, right? I mean, it's probably a little more complicated than that, but let's just pretend it's not, for the sake of this podcast. Since its development in the early 1960s, the use of MEMS technology has grown drastically, and they can now be found in all areas of science and technology. Transportation, communication, navigation, even healthcare. To learn more about how MEMS can be used in functional fibers, I talked to Tural Hudiev, a postdoctoral associate at the Fink Lab whose work on energy storage and actuation of fibers gives him a unique perspective on how MEMS can be used to enhance their fibers functionality. So we actually in that paper demonstrate uh, the first soft electromechanical system. So uh, by uh, applying electric field, you can, you can generate actuation. So actuation is that uh, when we apply electric field, so we get some uh, movement. So it can be high force, low force, depending on how much uh, voltage you apply. How do you create these fibers with MEMS functionality? So we are starting from macro scale preform. So at macro scale preform, we are putting there the electrostrictive polymer, so which is the, the, the type of the MEMS uh, functionality. I mean, so it's this active polymer. So when you apply electric field on this polymer, you can uh, see some actuation. We, can, uh, we start to see some actuation on the fiber. So, so this is very important because in, in that way you can generate the high aspect ratio actuation, soft flexible actuation, soft flexible MEMS uh, functionality in a fiber. So you've created this new type of functional fiber that is filled with a material that can actually move and change shape when a voltage is applied. So I'm wondering what types of actuation, aka forms of movement, can these MEMS fibers actually produce? Uh, we have explored three different modes of this actuation. First one is the thickness mode actuation. So, when Tural talks about thickness mode actuation, what this means is when you apply an electric field to the fiber, you can create a change in the radial size of the fiber, aka change in the thickness of the fiber. And thickness mode has some really cool applications. So, why it's important? Because especially if you want to release some kind of insect repellent, if you want to release some kind of perfume, oh. so or uh, if you want to release in a smart bandage case, if you want to release drug, so you need some kind of stimulation. So I mean, and MEMS is capable to provide this uh, stimulation. The uniqueness of our fiber is that our fiber can combine different domains, like so microfilling and MEMS on the same soft structure is actually unique. So uh, so if you have on one side you have a microfilics which can be a liquid form of this uh, this material. Then you can release different chemicals for different purposes, like perfume, as I said, or insect repellent or drug delivery. Wow! So these are some examples. That's really cool. So you mentioned the smart bandage. So you know this could be used in the future. You have some sort of cut abrasion. You could have different types of medications exactly. that you know, we'll be like, okay, it's time for the pain medication, time for the, you know, antibiotic, time for the inflammation control, and this could all be done just in one bandage. Exactly, exactly. And cool. especially if it combined with some kind of sensors or some kind of artificial intelligence, I'm a predictive way of the release of these drugs, so that's actually a next level 
in that's the really stack cool. delivery. There is a bending mode. So bending mode is actually a common American conventional form of the actuation, which is used for artificial muscles or uh, robotics. This concept, this bending mode, it is just the wildest thing, you guys. I was looking online at videos of these fibers, and in the video, they have just this innocent looking single strand of fiber twisted into the shape of a coil. And at the end of the coil is a metal weight. Then you sit there and you watch as this coil contracts and lifts the freaking weight off the ground by itself. And what's even cooler is that a single strand of these fibers can lift up to 650 times its own weight. So you can go ahead and just toss out your gym membership because with these babies, you'll never need to lift weights again. So here, uh, when you apply electric fuel, you can start to see longitudinal actuation. So fibers as an individual or as a bundle, I mean bundle of fibers, so it can be used uh, to obtain artificial muscles. Uh, so it can be used uh, for prosthetics purpose. It can be used for textile purpose. It's actually a new form of the uh, soft robotics. So it's a wearable robotics. Oh, very cool. Can you imagine that, guys? Artificial muscles using functional fibers? I'm picturing some new form of a robot that looks like a mashup of C-3PO from Star Wars and Tangela from Pokemon. Anybody else seeing that? No, just me. It's amazing how taking such small and simple devices like diodes and MEMS and embedding them into fibers can open up a whole new world of possibilities for fabrics. A whole new world. Sorry. These fibers can be used for more than fashion and science. They can also be used for fun too, specifically in the form of 3D printing. You've all heard of 3D printing before, and I'm sure a lot of you have even used one before. In the early 2000s, the term 3D printing became a kind of buzzword, and now, two decades later, the interest in the technology has skyrocketed. Ugh, I can't believe that the year 2000 was two decades ago. What happened? I feel like it wasn't too long ago when Nelly and Usher were top of the music charts, and 3D printing was just something from a Star Trek movie. God, I sound old. But 3D printing has moved beyond the world of Star Trek and can now be found virtually everywhere in our society. In modern day, anyone can 3D print just about anything. Using options like plastic, metal, or even glass, users can make really anything they can think of. People have printed sculptures, boats, violins, racer bikes. Some guy even made a full-size 3D printed Iron Man suit. Google it. I'm serious. It's amazing. As the cost of 3D printers and materials continues to decline, and the modeling and user face becomes easier to use, more and more people are turning to 3D printing to help find solutions to their problems. But there still remains a lot of untapped potential with 3D printing, specifically with the actual material itself. Because you know what 3D printers use to make all these crazy cool structures? That's right, fibers. And it just so happens that the researchers at Professor Fink's lab are working on creating a whole new set of functional fibers that can help to advance the uses of 3D printing even further. I sit down with Gabriel, who's literally written an entire paper on this topic, to get all the amazing details of how functional fibers can be used in 3D printing. Yeah, if you think about conventional 3D printing, you usually think about, you know, the speed of printing or what kind of materials you can print, but you don't really get into what kind of functions your 3D printer structures can exhibit. And so this, is, this paper kind of tackle into this area where you know, we introduce a, a whole new approach to be able to print 3D structures with device functionality. So this device functionality, you, you know, you can, it, it can be anything that you think about. It can either be a light emitting structure or you can have a 3D structure that detect light or you can have perhaps you know, a 3D structure that has some energy storage in it. So yeah, basically any kind of devices that you see around you, what we are trying to do here is to 3D print that structure and, and that's gonna as a bit the same kind of device functions that, that, that you see around you. So how do you create these light emitting fibers for 3D printing? For the light emitting fiber, the main material that we use is zinc sulfide. 
the mechanism for which the zinc sulfide starts emitting light is actually electroluminescence. Electro is like electric, luminescence is emitting light. This concept of electroluminescence honestly blows my mind. And for me, it rivals bioluminescence as the number one coolest type of luminescence around. You know, scratch that. Bioluminescence wins. Because who doesn't love cute little squids that light up? Electroluminescence is produced when you have a strong electric field or current that passes through a semiconductor material, in this case, zinc sulfide. As the electric current passes through the material, electrons from the semiconductor can take this energy and use it to move from one atom to the next. Once this free electron moves to an atom that's already missing an electron, it'll drop down into this atom's electron field and causes an energy release in the form of a photon. Now, this process is happening to electrons and atoms all across the semiconductor, which means lots of photons are being emitted from the material. And these photons are what make up the light that we see. Pretty cool, right? So what type of light can you create? Can you make different colors? Can it be brighter or softer? In terms of the color of the light, we can actually dope zinc sulfide with different kind of dopants. In our case, zinc it's giving out blue light because the zinc sulfide is doped with copper. If you dope it with manganese, you're able to emit red light or orange light. And you know, if you dope it with some other heavy metals, you're able to emit green light. So there's a whole spectrum of light that you can emit and the brightness of it is actually related to the amount of electric field you apply across the zinc sulfide. So, you know, a higher electric field means that you're going to have a, a, a brighter light produced from zinc sulfide. If you want to see this electroluminescence in action, go to Google and type in the words EL Wire Costumes Burning Man. These people have created all sorts of crazy outfits by gluing electroluminescent wires onto their clothing, what little they're wearing. And they now have outfits that glow all different colors and can be shaped into any design they want. And if you really want to procrastinate on whatever work you need to be doing right now, go to YouTube and search EL Wire Dance and spend the next three hours watching people dance in electroluminescent costumes. It's wild. You can take these light emitting filaments and you can put them actually into the 3D printer and you can create all these different structures. Really anything that you can do with a regular 3D printer? Yeah, one of the main difference of our approach as compared to other approaches, how we actually fit these uh, multi-material fibers into the, into the printer nozzle. The, the cool thing about our, our approach is that we are actually using a, a conventional 3D printer that you can find anywhere around you right now. We are using an FDM printer and that's like one of the most common printer. You just buy um, that on Amazon, get it can... shipped to your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In case you're wondering, Amazon does indeed sell 3D printers. And for the low, low cost of $330, you can have your very own FDM printer capable of printing structures up to six inches tall. Unfortunately, it's not eligible for Amazon Prime, and that's a deal breaker for me. What we have done here is to modify the nozzle to be able to print our fibers. What we envision in the future is like, you, you, you can just purchase modified nozzle from us and you can purchase like a, a multi-material fibers from us and you can just print any kind of devices that you want. In the paper, I also read that you were able to create light detecting filaments for 3D printing. How do these fibers work? For the light detecting filament, we actually use a semiconductor, which is what we call calcogenite, which means uh, it is a sulfur-based or selenite-based semiconductor. Similar to the light emitting fiber, what we have done here is to interface this calcogenite semiconductor with two electrodes. And how it works is that when light is being shined onto the semiconductor, we, we are going to create electron hole pairs in the semiconductor. And by applying a voltage across the electrodes, this potential difference is going to draw this electron and hole into two opposite directions and this is going to generate a, a, a current. So shining light on it, you are going to detect a photocurrent. And that's, that's basically how the whole mechanism works. 
So I'm curious, how are the structures inside preserved during the 3D printing process? Because I'm not somebody who really works with 3D printing, so in my mind it would cause a lot of problems, but uh, apparently it doesn't. Yeah, so we, we actually made use of a, a new technique, which we term as filament surface heating. And what we have done here is to modify this whole process where we heat only the surface of the printer line. So that's going to allow the surface of adjacent printer lines to stick together. But the core of the, the filament is going to remain at its solid state. Having the functional structure within this core and it is at solid state, you're going to allow it to still remain functional even after you print. Because basically nothing is going to happen to it if so you don't heat it up. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. In your paper, you showed how you were able to use both of these fibers together to print an entire wing for a model airplane. Uh, can you explain what and how you guys use these fibers for in the airplane? What, what we have done for the airplane, we printed five layers, I would say. The top and bottom layers are made up of the light-emitting filament, and the middle three layers are made up of a single photo-detecting filament. And what is happening is that the photodetecting filament is always detecting light from the light emitting filament, right? So let's say there's a damage somewhere within the photodetecting filament. What's going to happen is that the amount of photocurrent measured is going to be lesser than the normal undamaged state. So by measuring the photocurrent before and after damage, we can then back calculate to where the exact position of damage is being done. Seems like a handy feature to have, and as an added bonus, it makes the plane look a hundred times cooler, which is an obvious plus. You've also mentioned that these photodetecting filaments can be used to create light-sensing structures. What is the difference between a traditional light-detecting device and this new 3D-printed light-detecting structure? If you were to think about a typical photodetector, they're all planar basically they are two-dimensional and they can only detect from one phase of light impingement. What we have done here is to create a 3D structure, a sphere, and a sphere has um, detectors throughout its whole surface and that allows us to detect light in a spherical way throughout its whole, whole 360 degrees dimension. That's yeah. cool. So what do you yeah. think this, this 360 ability to detect light be used for? What type of applications would it have? One of it is in solar tracking. You know how if you were to you know, track the position of, a, of let's say a sunflower, right? Mm. You are able to see throughout the day the sunflower turning it, its head towards the sun. And what's happening here is that the, the sunflower has like an internal detector that allows it to know where the sun is and then it's going to turn towards the sun. And so what we are thinking here is very similar to the sunflower you have an omnidirectional detector. It's able to know, you know where the, the, the highest intensity of sunlight is. And then it's, it's going to tell solar panel to turn itself towards the direction of highest sunlight. And that's going to increase your, your final efficiency of you know, absorbing sunlight and turning that into electricity. Oh man, who wouldn't want their own 3D printed solar device? And you know, what would be even cooler is if you took those energy storing fibers, put them through the 3D printer, and then printed them in the shape of a sunflower. Then you'd have a little sun-charged sunflower that could also turn and follow the sun, just like a real sunflower. It's a sunflower robot! It would be so freaking cute. I want one. The Fink Lab did an amazing job answering all my questions, and I had many of them and a lot of them were too dumb to share with you guys. But turns out, it's not that easy to think of fun and exciting questions for an interview. So that's when I decided to turn to you guys for help. Before meeting with the Fink Lab, I shared with my listeners the details on some of the crazy cool stuff going on in their lab. And to no surprise, they had lots of questions too. Most of them way better than mine. So Juliet, Trual, and Gabriel team up to answer all your awesome questions about functional fibers. And they have some pretty awesome answers for you, too. 
Yeah, so Chris from Boston, he asks, can you recycle these fibers like any other type of clothing material? So if you're, say, done with a t-shirt or dress, you can actually get those fibers reused in other clothing. Would this be something that you guys could do too? So let's say you've used a t-shirt with these functional fibers in it for months, years. If the fiber itself is not damaged, you can totally take it out and then you know, recycle the fabric on one side and potentially send the fiber back so that it's reused in a different fabric. Nice. If you didn't want to, would these things just be safe to be tossed in our landfill? Yeah, because our fibers actually contain conventional plastics and like polycarbonate, polystyrene. So these are, I mean, they're all uh, well-known polymers. So they, uh, it's, uh, so they know how, where to put, where to, uh, how to dispose it. Good. So no yeah. toxic disposal. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, in terms of like sustainability, it would be best to, in, in some ways, reuse the fibers. I would say, and I think one could possibly envision, perhaps a a, a business model that's like what you see for phones today. Mm-hmm. You know, your phones get outdated every year or two, but you don't throw your phones away. You actually like trading for a better phone. So I can kind of guess, like someone, you know, you. You're using this um, functional fabric and you're like, oh, okay, right now this version is not the updated one and, and you can, Need the new you can model. kind of get a new model, just pay a bit of premium for it. And, yeah. <laughs> I love it. You guys yeah. are ready for it. Awesome. Chris had one last question. He asked if you guys can use these, these light emitting fiber threads to bedazzle your clothes, like make glowing embroidery almost. Oh, totally. <laughs> Definitely. Have you guys done it? Do you have a shop? Can I buy it? <laughs> I don't think they sell it yet, but they have like embedded a lot of the LED fibers into different clothing, mostly sports clothing, so that you so know like when you run in the dark, oh okay, people see you. I was um, thinking how light up Nike sign or something like that. That's <laughs> totally doable. It's just about the pattern you weave it. That's really cool. Yeah. Mark from New York, he asked if they any of these functional fibers are already used for products that people can purchase. The very first functional fiber is already being used in a startup. It's being like commercialized all around the world. Right now, there, there lies a, a great opportunity to commercialize the, the rest of the fibers. And what we envision is for every single person, they are going to you know, own a, a functional fabric, <laughs> I would say. And that's, cool. that's our aim. Right? That's the goal. Yeah. Mark also asked if you guys have any strategies in place to get your research from the lab to the market. Our professor actually founded now four years ago a functional fabric research and development center, and this is what they're focusing on. This institute called Advanced Functional Fabrics of America, or AFFOA for short, is a nonprofit that was started by Professor Fink back in 2015. This institute, located just around the corner from MIT, is at the front lines of transforming these functional fibers into real products. In just five years, the AFFOA has received over $300 million in private and government funding, has worked with huge name brand companies like New Balance, VF, and Bose, and has even created a national prototyping network that is working on over 30 projects with dozens of manufacturers and universities, all aiming to incorporate these fibers and textiles into mass manufacturing processes. So, if you thought these functional fibers were never going to be available to you, you thought wrong. And this is what they're focusing on, taking this fiber research and knowledge and scaling it up and dealing with the practical questions of we need to embed it into fabric, we need to connect it, and so on. And so this institute called AFOA, A-F-F-O-A, is working on that. And they have a lot of partnership with different companies, different universities. So it's very industry-oriented and product-oriented. Well, Mark will be relieved to hear. (laughs) So Kate from Connecticut asks if you guys are working on using these fibers to make an invisibility cloak. And if not, please start. (laughs) Is that something you guys think uh, is in the future with these fibers? That's a a tall order. Tall order. It's tough. (laughs) She's going to be sad. Probably can win the Nobel Prize. All right. So she'll check back in when we hear a Nobel Prize for the invisibility cloak. I'll try. I'll try hard. Those were some wild questions. Thank you, you guys. Man, 
it has been a whirlwind learning about the amazing world of functional fibers. And I wish that I had every single one of the fibers we talked about. I want a t-shirt made up of solar energy storage fibers to charge my phone on the go. I long for a wristband that reads my heart rate while I run, and I would absolutely die to have light emitting embroidery thread. My clothes would be dope. Really though, what an amazing topic in the field of science. I can't believe this stuff is happening right around the corner from me. Literally though, guys, I work like three buildings over from their lab and I had no idea. It only goes to show that amazing science is happening all around us. We just need to look for it. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to meet with the Fink Lab, but I couldn't let them go without getting personal with them. I wanted to know what the group thought about the great city of Boston. What is it that makes them love the city that they live in and work in? What makes Boston special to each of them? What I like the most, it's like, it, it's a big city that feels like a small city. So we have, you know, the universities, the museum, everything you could find in a big city. But the houses are cute. You can bike around, like bike outside of the city very quickly. So yeah, this kind of homey feeling. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, this is for me. Boston is, and Cambridge also together. I mean, <laughs> there are many um, places to, to, for education. And the city itself is very good. I mean, the transportation system is beautiful. Uh, eh, yeah. Green line, I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, compared to other... Compared, uh, sure. Uh, other, other, uh, <laughs> I heard from other yeah. states, they are not as good as this one. That's yeah. true. I would say, yeah, like what um, Tura mentioned, resources that, uh, that, that we can have in uh, the Boston-Cambridge area. You know, this is a, a hive of buzzing startups and we have like different companies, different universities, they're all so close to each other. So we can really build like these interconnections that can really propel research and um, business and ideas forward. So you've been in Boston now for 25 years, which means you must like the place. What would be your favorite thing about Boston? What's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think, at least for me, the excellence that we enjoy here in so many different areas. The fact that we have access and have people here from all over the world, almost like a global talent pool that we, we get to interact and work with. The connection between world-class and excellent healthcare with world-class and excellent academics. Actually, even uh, world-class and excellent sports. Mm -hmm. Can't forget about that. Yeah, can't forget about that. Every single one of them had a great reason to love this city. And there are hundreds more. I think for me, though, what I love most about Boston is the people who live here. I've always believed that you can meet every kind of person in the world, all on a bar crawl in Boston. We have people from literally everywhere in the world who have had virtually any job you can imagine and are passionate about every possible topic under the sun. All these different people coming together with so many different perspectives, you end up with a city fueled by new ideas that truly never ceases to amaze. What an amazing city we live in. And it seems even more amazing after learning all about the world of functional fibers. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show and a huge thank you to all the guests for being on today's episode. Professor Yol Fink, Dr. Trual Kudiev, Gabriel Loke, and Juliette Alain. If you are interested in the research discussed today, which you should be, and you'd like to learn more about their work, which you should do, you can find a link to the lab's website, as well as the links for many of the other cool things we talked about today at the bottom of the episode show notes. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter under the name BOS Science, where I post all the pictures talked about in the show, as well as information on upcoming guests and episode releases. If you'd like to send me your listener questions for upcoming guests, suggest a lab I should talk to, tell me about your own boss-ass research, or just want to say hi, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. Please, please, please send me your questions, guys. Don't make me go into these interviews with my questions alone. I'll make a fool of myself. My next guest works in a field that's near and dear to my heart, nanotechnology. I'll be sitting down with, well, more like talking over the computer with, Dr. Thomas Webster, a professor of chemical engineering at Northeastern University, 
who specializes in developing nanoscale technologies and medicines to combat diseases. What does that even mean? Well, it means making silver nanoparticles that can deliver antibiotics inside a bacteria cell to stop infections. And it means using magnesium oxide nanoparticles to aid in biomaterial bone implants. But most excitingly, it means a possible novel approach to stopping the spread of the COVID-19 virus. I hope they're able to come up with something quick because I'm ready for this quarantine to be over. It's been a month of working from home and my cat is driving me crazy. I swear, if I have to clean up cat puke off the bed one more time, I'm gonna lose it. So if you don't hear from me in a month, you'll know what happened. Before I sign off, I wanna give you a huge round of applause for making it this far into the episode. And I want to thank you so, so, so much for listening. I know there are literally thousands of podcasts out there and the fact that you've chosen to listen to mine just warms my heart. If you like the show, it would mean so much to me if you could help me out by quickly rating and reviewing the podcast, which helps the show be found by more people. If you have anyone who you think might be interested in the topics on my show, or would just love to hear my corny-ass jokes, please send them a link and share it with them. Alright, that's enough out of me. I think I've talked enough for one day. Join me in next month's episode, where I talk to wicked smart people about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.